0: This morning in our Galatians passage and in our Luke passage, we read two stories about faith. We heard Dr. Hampton read about Paul's great, deep faith, a faith that he believes comes firmly and exclusively from God. From Luke, we hear a great story of faith, though, uh, a faith that indicates the deep, powerful humble, sincere faith that I believe we're all called to have. This story of faith comes from quite an unlikely person. It comes from a Roman centurion, a person who the Jews of Jesus' day probably would not have looked to as an example for much of anything. But that's good news for us, because really, who are we also? We're people... We're sinners and saints alike, all of us very much in need of God's power and desiring a good, deep faith in God. And so today's story gives us hope because of the great power of God. It is, in fact, powerful enough to change the life of a Roman centurion. And if it's powerful enough for that, it's probably powerful enough for us as well, don't you think? Consider that as we hear these words from the gospel of Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in hearing the people, hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave who he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him asking him to come And heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He's worthy of having you come do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we turn the calendar to the month of June, traditionally we'll find wedding season upon us. Recently I've counseled with several couples who are getting married, actually in the fall and the winter time. And one of the things that inevitably comes up when you talk to a couple these days, is discussion about the vows. And recently, several of the brides in the couples that I have met have said to me, I'm not saying the obey part. Now, I, I officiated my first wedding after obey had been removed from the traditional vows, and so I've never actually had it in my uh, worship and sermon planning when it comes to officiating a wedding. But traditionally, a long time ago, the woman's vows to her husband were something like, I promise to love, honor, cherish, and obey. Now even the most uh, influential books have been amended and have dropped that obey part, so the man says the same thing to the woman that the woman says to her husband to be. But for a while, there was no parallel to this obey. They shared vows. The women had to obey the men. And uh, the men didn't. Now, these days, that couples may or may not want to include that word is actually of little consequence to me. What I find most interesting and significant about it is that they're thinking about the kind of marriage that they want to have. They're thinking about the kind of partnership that they want to create and maintain. They're thinking about how, when they look back on the vows that they make to one another, what is it, what is the trajectory that we are setting forth in these moments? And this is a good thing. It's good for us to desire uh, certain things. It's good for us to, to say things that matter and for us to long for something that matters across the long haul. Now, today is not about wedding vows or marriage vows. It's not about the way that couples, um, what they say and whether it's right or wrong. Rather, it is about the intentionality that they have as they think about their vows. For as they are intentional about their faith or about their vows, they're intentional about the marriage they're wanting to shape and create. And we too, in our language and in our belief and in our thinking, ought to be intentional for us about the faith we want to create among ourselves, in ourselves, with ourselves, and in that faith that comes from God. We are, it is up to us in many ways to decide how we want to experience faith. Do we intentionally want to have a faith Like that centurion's faith? Or do we want to settle for the faith that so many others had who were around Jesus trying to trip him up because he wasn't following the letter of the law? When I read about Paul and the faith that comes from God and when I read about this centurion, what I find is I want a faith like that. I hope you do too. Throughout Paul's letters to the churches of Galatia, we call it Galatians, he makes one profound argument over and over and over again. It's the last couple verses that Dr. Hampton read. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed to me is not of human origin, nor did I receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For Paul, this is of the utmost importance because he was a Jew. He was, in fact, really good at being a Jew. And he followed the law of being a Jew to the letter. He dotted his I's, he crossed his T's, and he kept every jot and tittle of the law beyond the expectations that most Jews would have had for themselves. He was so good at keeping the law that he worked hard at helping others keep the law. And when we meet him in early in Acts, he's taking care of people who were not following the law. But on that Damascus road where we met him, a story we read several weeks ago, what Paul proclaims is that the Spirit of God came to him and overcame him, and he discovered the power of Jesus as he received a revelation from God. And to Paul, this is different then the sensing and the learning, the belief that comes from sharing things with one another. Because, well, for that, that, that was a whole lot like his Judaism was. You see, for Paul, the law started in a good place. But after he saw what God was doing through Christ, he began to see that the law working itself out among those Jews that he grew up with, well, it was a law that was subject to great human influence. And so the law from the rabbis, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees had become a human law and not something from God. What Paul is proclaiming is that true power comes from God and that God gives true power. God gives power that's not bound by humans or by space or by time or by limits. So it comes and it gets him on the Damascus Road. It's a power that's not just about behaving the right way or doing the right things. Rather, the power of God that Jesus embodies, the power that Paul writes about, and the faith that somehow this centurion has, is a power that's beyond the simple, small-minded rules and limits of that Jewish law. The power of Jesus goes far beyond our imagination, as far as our wildest dreams can take it. And really, when we think about our faith in God, don't we want to have a faith like that?
1: In his gospel, Luke
0: repeatedly uses unlikely people to tell the most profound stories, and today we meet one of those.
1: The Romans were the ideological enemies
0: of Jesus They were the earthly empire that stood in opposition to David's throne that would someday come again. Living in that memory with the hope that another David would come, they lived politely under the Romans. But a centurion really did, even a good one, probably represented everything that was contrary to the Judaic culture at the time. But Jesus is bringing about a different kind of faith. Centurion represents access to faith. And is an example of what true faith is. And this true faith comes from an outsider. It comes from the least believable character of all in some ways. To the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religiously faithful of Jesus' day, the centurion was like the opposite of where God was going to work. But this centurion believed in the power of Jesus. And he becomes an example. He sees that what Jesus is doing is something that the others can't see. And therefore in Jesus he has great faith. He has a faith that Jesus can heal. A faith that Jesus can make all things well. And a faith that Jesus' power stretches even beyond the physical presence and the physical limits of time and space. He's thinking far beyond the framework of Judaism at the time. For for, for the religious people of Jesus' time, religion was about the power of God being present in a particular place, hence the temple, hence the veil and the curtain. People took pilgrimages to the temple. Altars were built all over the landscape because God had worked there. Let's go there and celebrate where God worked. Or even think about that man who was healed by Jesus at the pool at Bethesda. He believed that the power of God was in those waters, and if only someone could get him in the waters as soon as it, would stir, it was stirred, he would be healed. And Jesus healed the man without the waters. Jesus was bringing something new. Jesus was bringing a faith to the people, a faith that that emerges, that's powerful enough to believe that bigger things can happen than what had been done before. And is that the kind of faith you want to have? Is that the kind of faith we might want to have? That's the kind of faith the centurion had. The centurion has a faith like this, a faith that heals from afar. He has a faith that's based in seeing Jesus at work in the world around him. And a faith that can make things well for anyone and everyone. Not just those few religious elite who control the laws. And we want a faith like that because that's a faith that is real and is alive and is powerful. It's the kind of faith we experienced when we were first called into the faith, isn't it? And I really think when it comes down to it, what we need to do in order to experience this kind of faith is open our minds and let God work. Open our hearts and see where God can go. Start to believe. Because that kind of faith isn't limited to a centurion who lived 2,000 years ago. And that kind of faith isn't for just one time and place. And it wasn't just to heal one special slave in one story in Luke 7. That's the kind of faith Jesus died for and was resurrected to give us. That's the kind of faith that the Spirit of God enables in all of us. And that's the kind of faith that truly believes in the power of God to, in this case, heal, but in many other cases, do what it is that God wants to do in and around us that in some ways is beyond our imagination. And that's the kind of faith that even in Israel... Jesus had not yet found. John Lennon saying, You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And when it comes to having a faith like the centurion in Luke 7, some might say we're dreamers. But don't we want to have a faith like that? And if we do, how do we start? I think we start by believing. I think we start by believing and acting, believing and having faith, opening our hearts and minds to where God might work and believing. When I say that over and over and over again, I think about a line from the Lego movie where the character says, Believe. I know it sounds like a cat poster, but it is true. The first mission trip I ever took as a youth leader, the first one I ever led, was full of hiccups and troubles that were beyond our control As we were on our way to Atlanta, the van we had borrowed from the local preschool started to get kind of warm, and it was June. And what we realized was though we had left Zebulon with air conditioning. Air conditioning left us about Charlotte, and it didn't come back for the rest of the week. Someone else was driving the church's old Ford van, and then there was a rattle in the transmission. And then the church had to replace the transmission when we were in Atlanta that week. One of our chaperones drove her car to Atlanta because it would be easier for running errands and not having to transport people. And on Sunday night, she pulled the car into the parking lot of the restaurant we were eating and it kind of stalled. And she had to have her alternator replaced that week. And then I was a 23-year-old youth minister and I didn't realize that they put credit limits on the youth minister's credit card. So the last swipe I made with the church credit card was a swipe to secure the hotel rooms for the week on the first night. I wasn't sure how we were going to feed 36 people all week, but it happened. And uh, I'm thankful for those chaperones who helped us through. Circumstances at every turn on that trip were stacked against us, but never once did the chaperones or the youth, or maybe even me, as best I remember, stop believing. Every step of the way, those who were helping me had a choice. They could believe or they could get pessimistic. They could keep working towards the powerful, positive possibilities. And they did. And the way that they lived, the faith that they embodied, carried us far beyond the ridiculous car trouble and credit card limits that we had experienced. Looking back, it was one of the most important trips we ever took. And in many ways, while I'm often reminded of that trip, and, and I don't think about the troubles we had when I think about that trip, because I think about a glass that I bought for each of the chaperones. It was a, a, a pint glass, and it had a white line around it. And above the white line, it said, optimista, And below the right line, white line, it said, Pessimista. And you don't have to know very much Italian to know that that says optimist and pessimist. And I gave every leader a glass because at every turn, they chose to see the possibilities. They dreamed about what was possible instead of getting frustrated by what was trying to be impossible. In every way, they showed our youth the kind of faith and behavior to have when circumstances conspire against you. And in every way, when I remember that trip, I don't remember the trials and the failures. I remember standing on top of Stone Mountain with those kids. I remember block parties in apartment buildings. I remember traffic in downtown Atlanta, yes. But I remember all the good things that God did. I remember that I want to have a faith like that. A faith like those leaders helped me with. And in some way or another, choosing to have faith like that is very much like choosing to have a faith like the centurion did. Don't we want to have a faith like that? The faith of the centurion and the faith of Paul are a deep, abiding faith in the power of God. Because God's power pushes us beyond the practical circumstances and the the typical situations of everyday life. When we think back on this sermon, we think about wives saying, I don't want to, say, obey. And to some that might be anarchy. But to others... That's a, that, that displays a possibility for a partnership that could lie ahead for many, many people in a beautiful way. Some see Van Troubles on a youth trip as an opportunity to make memories instead of a stumbling block worth sobbing over because they see that God can work no matter what. And, we, and, and to remember that our faith comes from God, as Paul says, is to remember that seeking to bring faith to life helps us to know that God can do things that we can't. That there's a power at work that's greater than us, and that we can sense God's work in this world in a powerful way if we, like the centurion, have a deep faith, a faith like that. So tonight, today, think for yourself, what kind of faith do you want to have? What kind of faith do you have? And is that the one that you want? And are you willing to embrace a faith like Paul's or the centurion's? Are you willing to believe in the possibilities of what God can and will do? I hope you are. Because in, because in the face of all that we face otherwise in this world, I can't imagine living without a faith like that. Shall we pray? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the examples of great faith that you have given us. In this, an unlikely centurion, and I suppose in one of the most unlikely apostles of all, the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you for a faith that has come to us through you and through your love. And we pray that each day you would help us to have a deep abiding faith that believes in possibilities, and hope, and healing, and resurrection? And is it limited by circumstances, rules, or laws, or even religious authorities for whom it's in their best interest to make rules and laws? Lord, help us to see how you are alive and at work today, just like you were alive and at work in the life of that centurion many years ago. We thank you for his example And we pray that you would help us to have a faith like his today. As we pray in your great name. Amen.